You are listening to audio from Creekside Community Church. If you'd like to learn more about Creekside, find out about our services and upcoming events, or listen to other sermons, please visit creeksidecommunity.org. Great to see all of you today. Our, most of our, a lot of our men are at Mount Hermon at the annual men's retreat, which is, uh, begins uh, the first round of our annual contest between moms and dads. And... Uh, Who does a better job of getting their family to church when the spouse is not there? And I think the men are winning right now, but but, uh, we'll see how the women do in January when they have their, or February when they have their retreat. I'm John, one of the pastors here, and if this is your first time with us, welcome. We're glad to have you here. We have uh, three gifts of appreciation here if you'd like one. We have a, a sippy cup, a water bottle, and a coffee tumbler, and you can get those right outside at our um, visitors, uh, welcome desk thingy, thing of my job. Uh, anyway, if you're here for the first time, anyway. Um, if any of you have prayer requests um, or questions about our church, there's a card in the seat back in front of you, and you can uh, fill that out and drop it over in the offering slot, and we will get back to you or pray for you as uh, whatever you uh, need. Um, you know, the, the Bible describes the, the church as a, like a physical body. And it's, the whole point is that we need, each, each member of the body needs each other. If the whole body was an eye, as Paul says, you would have a hard time. Um, if your whole body just was a big eye, how would it get anywhere? And so we all play different roles. We all need each other. And because of that, we have been meeting in community groups for years because it's, we find it's in these close weekly fellowships where we really get to know each other, get to know Jesus, study the Bible together, encourage one another. If you're not in a group like that and you would like more information, you can get that information by going online on our, on our website and looking at our community groups or just taking one of those cards I mentioned and write CG community group, and drop it over in the offering slot, and we will get that information to you to let you know what groups are near where you live and, and when, they, when they meet and everything. I really encourage all of you to try out a group. It's, uh, it, it really will invigorate your faith. One summer, I uh, taught a Bible class at an institute, and uh, we were playing volleyball one afternoon, and... Uh, just a casual game of volleyball, except for me. And uh, I just got more and more angry as my team got further and further behind. And I started glaring at my team members when they would miss a set or hit the ball out of bound, and I argued lots of points with the other team. And, and uh, after the game, I just forgot about it because that was just a typical athletic contest for me. Until the following morning, And after I taught my class, one of the students stayed behind to talk with me. And she said, John, I'm amazed at how much of the Bible you know. And my head began to swell. And how you can still behave the way you behave. (laughs) And, And she was right, because I knew a lot more of the Bible than I actually practiced. And that's the problem that James addresses in the passage we're going to look at today. James 1, 21 through 25 is really about how to be blessed by God. And James applies a promise 
that appears all the way through the scripture that God blesses those who obey him. And he gives us three things we need to do to be blessed. Last week we looked at the first two. Uh, one is, is to prepare our heart for the Bible, to remove the weeds and the rocks and the stuff that keeps the Bible from going deep. And then plant the word deep in our lives. Now, when the Bible talks about being blessed, it, it means to receive power and favor from God for the attainment of success, productivity, protection, and peace. And preparing our heart for the word, planning the word are essential for that, but they're not sufficient. Because James gives us one more thing to do. Look what he says in verse 22. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. But don't settle for just preparing and planting but move on to practicing. God never has any promises for Bible knowledge. All the promises are for Bible application. The, uh, the Bible is not given to fill up our notebooks with great insights we had in our Bible study that sit in our desk. It's not so that we can be the person who answers everybody's Bible question. It's given to change our lives. And, and that's what I want to talk about this morning. You see, spiritual maturity in the Bible is defined by practice. Look what Hebrews says. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. The thing that makes a Christian spiritually mature is not how much we know, but what we do with what we know, what we practice. Because as we practice what the Bible says, those practices become a habit. Those habit becomes part of our character. And we are able in everyday life to tell the difference between good and evil, between wisdom and foolishness, be, between what is true and what isn't true. And so what I want to talk about today is, is how to become a doer of the word. Um, this may be a somewhat different way to approach the Bible than you're used to. You may not agree with it. That's fine. Your responsibility is just to be a doer of the word. I'm just going to share with how, how I do that. Hope, hopefully that'll be helpful. So let's practice and then we'll jump in. Let's pray and then we'll jump into this. Thank you, Father, for your word that changes our lives. And we pray you'll give us wisdom eyes to see, ears to hear, what you have to say to each one of us individually. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, in verses 22 through 25, James has a warning, and he has a promise. So let's look at the warning. But, rather than settling for simply preparing and planting the word, prove yourselves doers of the word, and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. 
When I was single, I, I lived in a large three-bedroom apartment in Berkeley with six other guys for a while. Huge apartment, but it only had one bathroom and one mirror. And, uh, and we all left for work about the same time every morning. And, and you could see that from looking at us that most of us merely glanced at that mirror on the way out because there'd still be shaving cream hanging from my ear or part of face left un, unshaven, hair messed up or T-shirt inside out. We really hadn't noticed. But we had one guy in our, one of our roommates was a male model. I mean, he, he always impeccably dressed. Nose, ear trimmed, every hair in place, his clothes always matched, which was as rare in Berkeley then as it is today. <laughs> and he would gaze at that mirror long after we had left to make sure everything was in place. Well, the word that James uses here for looks is the Greek word for glance. And he says the person who does not apply the word to their lives is like a man who just glances at a mirror, doesn't use it to correct anything, and immediately forgets what he saw when he went away. And that's the problem, that if we don't become doers of the word, if we don't learn to practice the word, we will forget what we learned. It'll just leave us. That's why Jesus' greatest opponents were the Pharisees. Pharisees knew their Bible better than anyone in Israel. They had memorized the whole Old Testament. They spent every day discussing and teaching and debating the Scriptures. And yet, look what Jesus says. The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. That is, they have taken the responsibility to explain the law of Moses to you. Therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe. But do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and do not do them. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with as much as a finger. They know the Bible, but they never apply it to their own lives, especially the parts of the Bible that deal with their hearts. Do we ever do that today? Is it possible to be a hearer of the word and not a doer today? What is the most common criticism you hear about Christians? You're hypocrites, right? You say one thing, but you don't do it. You talk about the importance of love, and yet the church can often be the most unwelcoming place in the community. You talk about the importance of believing in God, and yet you hoard your possessions and aren't generous. You talk about how Jesus is our only Savior, yet you act as if the only thing that will save America is politics. You hear the word, but don't do it. And that's the warning that James is making. If we don't practice the word, we're just deluding ourselves. We're fooling ourselves where we think we're far more spiritual than we really are. That's his point. Well, having said that, he now gives us an important promise in verse 25. He says, but one who looks intently. You see the contrast there? One person 
glances at the mirror, the other person gazes intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. Notice the person who practices the Bible does two things. One, he looks intently at it. He reads it carefully. And the other thing he does, he abides in it. That word abides means to be at home in. And the way he makes his home there is he practices it. Before we look at those two things, I want to see why he does it. Notice that James calls the Bible the perfect law, the law of liberty, or the law which gives liberty. Why would James describe it that way? Jesus said, he who continues in my word is truly my disciple, and you'll know the truth, and the truth will, what? Set you free. Why would the truth set us free? Because sin reigns in our lives through lies. We're slaves to sin because we believe sin's lies. We've, we've grown up believing all kinds of lies. For example, I will never be happy unless everybody likes me or unless I'm recognized for my contributions or unless we get out of debt and I have a comfortable cushion. Those are lies. And yet, because we believe thousands of lies we've grown up believing, sin maintains its hold on me. Have you ever asked God to free you from some sin? I've asked God to free me from a lot of sins, and he's always been silent. Oh, God, take away my lust. Take away my laziness. Uh, take away my procrastination. Take away my anger. And nothing happened. And it wasn't until I learned he'd already answered those prayers. He gave me the power to say no to sin the moment Christ came into my life and I was born again. Then he gave me a whole book to teach me what was true so that I could apply it to my life and be freed. And so every area I've seen changed was when I took that area and found out what God taught about it in the Bible, and it completely changed my mind. And as I began to see that thing as God saw it, I began to obey God. It's, it's the truth that sets us free. And so freedom begins with doing two things, looking intently at the perfect law and then abiding in it. Let's talk about looking intently. How do you read the Bible carefully in order to become a doer. Louis Agassiz was a professor of zoology at Harvard University in the 1800s who established the Museum of Comparative Zoology. And a man by the name of Samuel Scudder became his student and later wrote a very famous essay on how Professor Agassiz taught him to learn. He met the professor in the lab one day, and he told him that he wanted to devote his, his life to the study of insects. And the professor said, wonderful, when would you like to start? And Scudder said, well, right now. So the professor was pleased. He went to a shelf. He took down a large jar full of yellow alcohol and removed a dead fish from the jar and laid it on a table and says, I want you to look at this fish, and later I'll come back, and you can tell me what you see. 
Well, Scudder said he was done looking at the fish in about 10 minutes, so he went to look for the professor who had left the museum. So Scudder went back to the lab and looked at this fish, which was becoming more and more repulsive looking as he looked at it. So he decided to take an early lunch. So when he came back from lunch, the professor still hadn't returned to the museum, so he went back and looked at the fish. And he began to put his fingers down its throat to feel its teeth, and he tried counting how many uh, scales were in a line and discovered, decided that was ridiculous. And then he thought, you know, if I, if I got a pencil and drew the fish, maybe I'd learn something from that. So he begins to draw the fish. And about that time, the professor comes back, and he, Professor Agassiz says, that's wonderful. Yeah, pencils are one of our best eyes. Well, tell me what you see. And so Scudder described the, the lidless eyes and the, the thick fleshly lips and the arched body and the gills and, and the this, this spiny body. And, and Gazes listened, but he acted like he expected to hear more. And he says, you haven't looked at all. You've missed the most conspicuous, most conspicuous aspect of this fish. Keep looking. And so Scudder spent the whole rest of the afternoon looking at the fish. But the more he looked, the more he discovered. And he, and he recognized that Agassiz had been right, that he really hadn't seen the fish. And so when Agassiz came back at the end of the afternoon, he says, have you seen it yet? And Scudder says, no, I haven't. But I realize how much I haven't seen. So Agassiz says, well, go home, come back in the morning, we'll talk again. And all that night, Scudder says he taught, thought about the stupid fish. And so in the morning, when they met in the laboratory, he says, do you see it yet? And he says, do you mean that the body is symmetrical? with paired organs? He says, that's it. And so Scudder says, wonderful. What do I do next? He said, well, look at your fish. And this goes on for three days as, as he spends every day in the lab simply looking at this fish. But the more he saw, the more he looked, the more he saw. And he said, that was the lesson that taught me how to learn, that you learn by observing. You learn by looking. You don't settle for the superficial, but you look deeper and deeper. By the way, Scudder went on to major in fish rather than insects as, as a result of that. We learn the Bible by looking intently at it, by gazing at it, because the more we look, the more we see. Now, I want to share with you what I look for when I read the Bible, and this may or may not be helpful to you. The first thing I look for is I want to look at the context. I want to get the big picture. I want to see the forest before I look at the individual trees. Because the meaning of words is determined by the words around them. The meaning of verses is determined by the verses around them. The, the meaning of chapters is determined by the chapters around them. So the first thing I do when I read a passage of the Bible, I want to see how it all fits together. And the way I do that is I look at the first word of each verse to see how it ties in with the rest. So let's look at the passage we've been looking at for the last two weeks. Verse 21, therefore, that tells me that that this verse and this passage somehow is connected to what came before. I need to know how it's connected. And as you remember, we talked about this last week. James has been talking about the goodness of God and how God and his goodness has caused us to become new people, born again by the word of truth. 
And therefore, we're to live new lives. Therefore, be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. You've been born again by the word. Now you grow by the word. But there's a contrast. There's a contrast here. What's being contrasted? But rather than simply settling for preparing the soil and planting the word, also prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For, for shows how or why. In this case, it shows how we delude ourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But there's a contrast between the doer of the word and the hearer of the word, but one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. So I get an idea of how the whole sweep of the passage before I look at the individual verses. And I do that by seeing how they're connected. Now the next thing I will look for is I look, to, I look for any words that are repeated because the biblical authors, if they wanted to emphasize something, they just said it over and over. They didn't, they didn't have underlining or italics like we do. So if you want to emphasize something, you say it several times. I want to understand what the author means for me to learn. So I look at what words does he repeat in this passage. I see he repeats hearer and doer. He repeats word or scripture or law. And he repeats see how you see something. So that gives me an idea of what this passage is about. Then I'm going to look uh, at contrast. Not this, but this. And I see there are two contrasts in this. Uh, there is the, the contrast between the person who hears but doesn't do and the, the person who, who does what the, Bible, what the Bible says. And I see there's a contrast between how each one approaches a scripture. One glances, like a man who just glances as a mirror and doesn't use it to correct himself. The other one gazes intently. Then I'm going to look for lists. No lists in this passage. Um, then I look for cause-effects. This happens, which causes this to happen. Or this doesn't happen, so this doesn't happen. That shows me how things work. There's two, two cause effects in this. The man who is a hearer but not a doer, this man deludes himself. The man who is a doer, this man will be blessed in all he does. So this whole passage is based on that contrast. Then finally, I want to look for commands, because if I'm going to practice the Bible, I need to know what I want to practice. We see there's three commands in this. Lay aside all filthiness and all remains of wickedness. In humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your soul. Finally, prove yourselves doers of the word. So then I want to ask, what's the big idea? What's the main point of this passage? And I think the main point of this passage is how to be blessed in everything you do, right? Because that's where we end up. And I kind of arrange that in terms of the commands. You want to be blessed in all you do? Lay aside all filthiness and all remains of wickedness. In humility, receive the word implanted. Prove yourselves doers of the word. So that, that's how I read that carefully. Is that a lot of work? It is a lot of work. But remember, Agaza's fish. The more you look, the more you'll see. Paul says to Timothy, consider carefully what I say, and the Lord will give you insight. God speaks to us the more carefully we look at what's in the Bible and read it over and over again and keep, 
taking note of the new things we learn. Now, the other thing, besides looking intently I need to do to practice the Word, is abide in it by becoming uh, uh, an effectual doer. I need to make uh, the Bible my practice. And I want to show you how I do that. I use 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 as a template. Paul says, All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for four things, teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate and equipped for every good work. The Bible is helpful, is profitable to make me adequate, equip me for every good work. It does it three things. Teaching, what do I learn? Reproof, where do I fall short? Correction, what will I correct? And then training in righteousness, how will I practice this correction until it becomes a habit? Let's first thing I, I look for after I've looked carefully at the Bible is I ask, what do I learn? What's the lesson I learned? One lesson I learned from this passage is be careful not to settle for just knowing, but go on and practice. That's the le- You can see that lesson there, right? Now, you want to state your lesson in as personal a way and as clear a way as concrete because the, the more concrete the lesson is, the more practical it will become. But that's still pretty general. I need to practice not just settle for learning. So then the second question, that's, so we move on to reproof. Reproof is the uncomfortable part of Bible study because it shows us what we need to correct. And yet, the Proverbs says, the wise person loves those who reprove them because I can't correct something until I see what needs to be corrected, right? So I ask under reproof is, what's the opposite of the lesson? Well, if my lesson is, I can't, I, will not settle for simply knowing the Bible, but I will practice it. I have to ask, do I ever settle for just knowing? And I have to say, yes, I do. And one example is a verse I've known for 50 years, but have never put into practice. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks, for this is God's will concerning you in Christ Jesus. Everybody, anybody ever heard that? verse before? Anybody practice that verse? I don't. I don't. So I have to ask, the, do I fail to practice what I know? Yeah. First Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. Then I ask, still under reproof, what is the result of not practicing that? What is the result of this opposite in my life? And I say, I react emotionally to situations. I get stuck behind somebody, the slowest Prius in San Leandro, and I'm in a hurry, and I get frustrated. I react against somebody. I just don't like them immediately, and I have no idea why I don't like them. Or I get some strange new pain, and a feeling of dread comes over me. You're not going to live throughout the week. So yes, I don't practice this. I don't rejoice always. I don't pray without ceasing. I don't give thanks in everything. What is that producing in me? It's producing a reactive, angry, worried, hurried man. Does that make sense? That's my reproof. So I got my lesson. I've got reproof. Why do I need to apply this lesson? Next gets to correction. Correction is just, what am I going to do about it? What do I want to be true of me? And I write, my correction is, I want to be 
a calm, faith-filled man who doesn't forget Jesus in, in, uh, in emergencies. That's my, that's my correction. That's the kind of person I want to be. How do I become that person? That gets us to training in righteousness. What is training? Training is practice, isn't it? I practice what is unnatural and unfamiliar until it becomes habit, until I can do it well. I, I used to play flute all the way through college, and, and when I would learn a new piece, I would have to practice it very slowly because people who compose flute music are sadists. And, and they love to put in impossible runs. And those runs are faster than you can mentally stay up with. So you just have to practice it over and over and over again until it just becomes muscle memory. And so when you're performing the piece, you don't think about the piece. Your, your fingers just fly on their own because you've practiced. When I swim, I'm always working on improving my stroke, becoming more effective in the water. And every new adjustment I do is always feels unnatural because I haven't done it before. But I keep practicing it, practicing it until it becomes part of my stroke. That's what, that's what practice does. That's what training in righteous training does. You're practicing to take what is unnatural for you and making it part of you. So training in righteousness is taking the correction and practicing it until it becomes part of me. So my question is, how can I, as a habit of life, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks? Well, I found to develop any habit, you need three things. First of all, I need a reminder. I need something that reminds me to practice. Isn't it, don't most of our ha building new habits fall down, we just forget to practice it? I need something to remind me that I need to practice. And for me, the best reminder is temptation because I don't have to plan to be tempted. It just happens. So when I am tempted to be hurried or angry or anxious, that's my reminder to practice this correction. Does that make sense? Next thing is I need a routine this is what I actually do to practice this. So what's my routine? Well, for me, I just take Jesus' example. When Jesus was tempted, what did he do? Quoted the scripture, didn't he? Satan says, if you're the son of God, turn this stone into bread. What did Jesus do? It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So my routine is to quote a verse. And so when I feel hurried, are frantic, are anxious, are angry. Um, I quote James 1, 2 through 4, consider all joy when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Let endurance have its perfect result that you may be perfect, complete, and lacking in nothing. Instead of seeing my enemy as the Prius driver, I see God is in control of this. This is a test that's come from him to strengthen my faith to remind me to do the right thing, to practice trusting God, to practice rejoicing always, to practice praying without ceasing, to practice giving thanks in all things because I know God is using this for good, make me perfect, complete, and lacking in nothing. And that's the way I practice it. So I need a reminder. I need a reward. 
Third, I need a reward. I, I need a reminder. I need a routine. Third, I need a reward because I will never develop a new habit unless I get a reward. That's just the way I am. For years, I've gotten up at 5.30 to go swim in the morning. And that is not a sacrifice for me. That's the best part of my day because I love, I, I, it calms my mind. It works out every major muscle group in my body. Most importantly, it just makes me feel good. And I find if I can find a reward, I will develop the habit. So what's my reward for going through my routine? It gives me joy. It reduces my blood pressure. It reminds me not to forget about Jesus when things go south. It, it, uh, it, 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 gives me, it gives me a stability to my life so I can be mentally present with God and mentally present with other people rather than distracted by other things that bother me. Does that make sense? Now, is this a lot of work? You better believe it. There's a lot of work for Samuel Scudder to look at that fish. But if you read your Bible regularly, you're doing the work anyway. Why not make it effective? Why not use it to change your life and move from being a hearer of the word to a doer who is blessed in everything they do? Does that make sense? Now, my method, this is just my method. This isn't Bible. This is just what I've worked out that's worked for me for years. It may not be for you. But the command to be a doer of the word is for you. And if you don't like my way of doing it, come up with a better way for yourself. I read about a, a woman this week named Stacy Irvine. And Stacy ate nothing but chicken nuggets and french fries for 15 years. And one day she felt her tongue beginning to swell and she couldn't breathe. And she was rushed to the emergency room. They, they forced her airways open. They hooked her up to nutrients to give her the nutrition she lacked till finally she returned to normalcy. And they told her as she left the hospital, change your diet or prepare for an early death. Right now, the level of biblical illiteracy among Christians in America has never been greater. Christians in America know less of the Bible today than in the whole history of America. And that's why Christians are weak and fearful and so shaped by our culture. My challenge to us as God's children is to put in the work in the word that we need so that God can bless us in everything we do and we can become examples Physical, visible testimonies to the goodness of God of what God does for people who take him seriously. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word which performs its work in us who believe. I pray for my brothers and sisters that those who fear you will see us and be glad because we wait for your word. We pray in Jesus' name.